0: Well, again, it's good to have you here today, and we're going to get in the you know, Bible now and have a good time today. And last week, if you remember, we were in Proverbs chapter 14, and we looked at verses 3 through 8, and uh, really had a good study on, on pride. And pride is something that you could probably can't hear too many sermons about uh, I was I was kind of surprised last week that uh, throughout the week, you know, as I talk to people and see people, I had a number of people thank me for the message and said, you know, I really need to work on that. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't say anything at the time when they told me, but I thought you were the last person in the world that I thought would have a problem with pride. But it just goes to show you that it's something that we all have to deal with. And we learned a couple of things. And it was in specific, it talked about the rod of pride. Uh, in a man's mouth. And we saw that pride becomes a power in our life, something that, that we really have to struggle with and can really take control. We saw that pride will be the root of all of our problems because fundamentally when you have a problem, the best way to deal with it is to get right with God and fix it. But when you won't, it's because of pride. We also saw that pride will blind you. We talked about how so many of God's people, and boy, you see this in a lot of I don't mean to crack on the Southern Baptist churches because you see it in in fundamental Baptist churches too. But uh, Southern Baptists were famous for deacons, have been deacons for 35 years, the most unspiritual people on the planet. And probably in many cases not even saved. And yet they always had that spiritual facade that they were something that, uh, you know, that they weren't. And that's, that's pride. Pride will blind you. And then the next thing we saw, that pride will keep you from getting right with God. It will always go against whatever the Holy Spirit of God tries to tell you and convict you of. And of course, when you get blinded to it, then you actually get yourself to believe that you're doing what God wants you to do when you're actually not. And uh, we saw then that pride will destroy you uh, in the end. And uh, it's, a, it's a thing that the uh, Bible talks about, that, uh, you know, that uh, pride comes before destruction, and it happens uh, all the time. And the last thing is that pride will take you from the structure that God has put in your life. And that'll be your church. That'll be your relationship with God, relationship with other people. I showed you that the first example and really the definitive chapters uh, and the model in the Bible on pride would have been in Ezekiel 14, Genesis 1-1 and Ezek- uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. I also took you to Proverbs six sixteen and showed you the seven characteristics of the devil, uh, character qualities or character flaws, I should say. And of course, number one was a proud look. And I showed you how that pride was the first sin in the Bible. And it started with Lucifer, who had, uh, was beautiful and everything and that God made him and had all of the wisdom of God and got everything from his spiritual father. And then because of pride, lifted him up because of all of that. Then he turned on yeah. God and went against God. And now the Bible says in Job chapter 41, verse 34, now that, uh, that a proud look was the source of his problem and pride was the original sin, now the Bible says that the devil is the king over the children of pride, in Job chapter 41. And we saw that our pride will always be our number one source of our issues because it, as I said, was the first sin in the Bible. And it comes uh, in our life, and it starts in our lives basically from three things. One, when we start to question what God said. When we look at the Bible, and the Bible says one thing, but we decide we know better in our life than God does, and we do something else. Second of all, when we question his wisdom in any matter. The principles in the Word of God are there for a reason. They show you the direction of life. And when somebody thinks that their direction is better than God's direction, It's going to be because of pride. And then uh, uh, the third one would be questioning God's authority over us. God has put, and Paul talks about this to young Timothy, he has put a structure in your life to keep us, all of us, uh, doing what God wants us to do. And when when we question that authority, when we step outside that authority, then that's when we start to have some problems. Now today, we're going to move on through three more verses here. Uh, 9, 10, and 11, and again, we will see some tremendous principles for our lives and how it keeps uh, the victory that we have uh, in Christ, and I want to read Proverbs chapter 14, verses 9, 10, and 11, and it says this, fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. The heart knoweth his own bitterness, and a stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. The house of the wicked shall be overthrown, but the tabernacle of the upright shall flourish. Now, each one of these verses has a really good principle within it, and we're going to look at each one and apply it to our lives as as Christians. And we want to look at three things, and I want to focus on just three things today. First of all, in verse 9, it talks about the fool. We want to talk about the fool. Number two, verse 10, it talks about the heart, so we want to talk about that. And in three, we want to talk about, in verse 11, the the house. So before we go any farther, Darren, would you ask God's blessing and pray for us this morning as we get into the Word of God? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the blessings that you give us each and every day. Bless the Word and uh, give God the Word to say to uh, to. to to let it flourish in our hearts and uh, let us take it home and apply it. We just love you and thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we get into this, I want to welcome and thank everybody who's on the website for watching today. I know all the... Lincoln crowd is up there, and they're uh, they're watching in, and I'm sure the Wichita crowd and, and all of the other folks that are scattered across the, the country, I get letters from you all the time, and I appreciate that, and I'm glad that you're tuned in with us today, and I hope you get a blessing out of it. Now, let's look at verse 9. Let's start with that. It says, "'Fools make a mock of sin, but among the righteous is favor.'" Now, this verse is one of the truest principles of life that you're you're ever going to see, and it's one of those simple foundational concepts that is true in everything in life. A fool looking and seeing their sin and then making a mockery of it before God. And boy, I'll tell you what, if there's any place that you see this today, uh, even among God's people, you know, sometimes it astounds me. The people, the things that people do that they're proud of, that are totally against everything in in God's word, and uh, I I had a I got a, a Jenny gave it to me today. We have a guy in Canal Fulton, Ohio, who who uh, sent me a very nice uh, uh, article out of the Can repository. In fact, it's back there, and uh, he. He tells me he's he's my disciple online. He follows us online all the time. And uh, I've never met him, but I've talked to him on the phone a couple of times. And he actually sent me an article that I will cherish probably for the rest of my life uh, that was an in-depth article on when Billy Sunday came to Canton, Ohio in 1933. And a whole article there is about Billy Sunday, what he preached, where he preached, places that I'm very familiar with that I never had a clue. And uh, Billy Sunday only preached in Canton two times, uh, once in 1911 and then again in 1931. And he goes into great depth and shows pictures of it. It's incredible. And it's one of those things where Billy Sunday uh, was the man who singly-handedly brought in Prohibition. Wherever Billy Sunday went, he, whenever he preached, and he preached on a variety of subjects, but he preached on booze and alcohol. And of course, he preached it to the place where, through his preaching, uh, the way the country was back then at that time, through his preaching, he single-handedly uh, turned this country into a dry nation where for the next, what, 15 or 20 years, uh, the only drink booze you could get had to be made in a bathtub someplace, and uh, it, it was illegal to have it. And an incredible testimony to the power of God in a nation that will still listen to God. And yet I I look around me today and I see, you know, churches today that you talk about making a mockery of sin, take and and now have social drinking. They they talk about that as long as you don't do it in excess, and as long as you don't become an alcoholic, and as long as you don't go too far with it, that it's okay. I'm gonna tell you something. In my forty some years of dealing with people, I never dealt or met with an alcoholic that ever knew he was an alcoholic. They always thought that they weren't and always knew they could stop and were blinded to the fact that they were completely out of control with it. But yet we see it. We see it in churches. Forget the world. We see it with God's people. Man, some of the stupidest stuff people post on Facebook or post on their social media where they claim to be Christians, they claim to be a child of God, but when you look at it, they got a beer in one hand or a glass of wine in the other hand, and it's all a mockery. And Billy Sunday, he must be rolling over in his grave. I remember about 20, 30 years ago, D.L. Moody was a great preacher in Chicago, And he really had brought that town to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And his influence was incredible. And about 20 years ago, when when Chicago was going through some of its roughest times, and Chicago today is an absolute cesspool, as most big cities are, a man in the Chicago Times had put an article on Chicago's problems and listed all of the deaths and all of the alcoholism and all of the problems and all of this. And then, with a great shadow of a bulky man with a hat on, standing with a Bible under his arm, that kind of darkened the whole article, it was an actual image of a man. He said, Chicago needs another D.L. Moody. And that's exactly where America is at today. It's exactly where Christianity is at today. We as God's people claim to be saved, take the very principles that God gives us and then makes a mockery out of them before God. And the greatest example of this will be America itself. We've talked before how America was founded on God's principles, how that the word of God, God was written into its founding documents by the founding fathers, And all you got to do today is go to Washington, D.C., and you will find that on every great, now government federal building, you will find scriptures and Bible verses over all of them. And I knew a man one time who took all the verses off the buildings in Washington, D.C., and he simply enclosed them into a message and preached on the sinful ways of America. It was incredible. Washington, D.C. is the most corrupt, godless city on earth. And yet, it's filled with references to God. I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night about the stones in Joshua chapter 24 that were going to be a witness. You go over in Luke chapter 19 around verse 40 and Jesus says, You know what? If you guys would not have proclaimed me as, as king the stones themselves would have cried out. You stop and think about that. You stop and think about what a witness it's going to be against the capital of this country who has built her city on the word of God and put them everywhere you see it. Down at 17th and and, uh, Constitution Avenue, behind the bushes there, in front of one of the federal buildings, there's a statue to Daniel and his wisdom with God. In the Library of Congress, you find reference after reference and picture after picture and inscribed in the walls of Moses in the Ten Commandments. It's right there on the, on the Library of Congress as Proverbs 22 28, not to forget the old landmarks. You have a statue of the liberty to worship, right in Washington. You have a painting in the Hall of Congress of, called Judea that is a picture of Israel and her relationship with God. You find in the in the Congress, uh, Psalm 16, 1 on the wall, where God they're asking God to preserve us, O oh God. For indeed do we trust. You go over to the Supreme Court and you'll find 12 distinct images of Moses and the law of God, etched in the walls, in the cement, in the stones, claiming and asking that the wisdom that Moses had would be given to the wisdom of the Supreme Court. Boy, something went wrong there. There's a pictures of the pilgrims when they landed in Plymouth with an open Geneva Bible showing how important the Word of God was. To the men who found this great country. In the Library of Congress, there's walls of the library. Right on the wall is Psalms 119. In the face of all the arguments in Missouri and Kansas. In the public school system about evolution. In the Library of Congress on the wall is Psalms 19, 1-4. The heavens declare the glory of God. In Washington... The Washington Monument. On a capstone it says, praise be to God. There's ten inscriptions of the Bible on it. And in the cornerstone is a King James 1611 authorized version. You see God on the Jefferson Memorial. Isaiah 40 inscribed on the Lincoln Memorial. The White House still has the prayer mantle of John Adams on display. You go to New York on the UN building, and a verse on the New York, the UN building, the most godless, perverted against the nation of Israel group of people, and against God you ever saw. But there on the wall is Isaiah two, verse four, about the millennial reign of Christ, of uh, beating swords into plowshares. Everywhere you go in that city, you find the footprints of God that was in this country. And right in front, under their nose, every one of those organizations make a mockery of God today. In our school system, at one time, they read the Bible. They started with prayer. Prayer. I remember when I was in grade school at Christmas and Easter, they actually brought a preacher in who told the story of salvation. Our country one time had the most incredible value system in the world. And it made it the greatest nation on earth. But now that's all gone. America now is is absolutely falling apart in families, in churches, in schools, because they mocked the very godly principles that made this country great. America mocking at sin. And in the face of all that history with God, and his word influenced in this country, they pretend like it's not even there. And every day, they walk into those buildings, they go down that hall, they make their corrupt judgment, they turn things around with God under the very word of God that made this country date. And someday, someday when Jesus comes back, those walls, stones, rocks will cry out. (laughs) You've heard me say, Many times, based on the book of Judges, the worst thing that could ever happen to a man or a nation or a church is for God to quit injecting himself into that person. And our mocking of sin as a nation, as a society of people, has now brought us to that place in history. Listen, God did it to Israel. He took his hand off of them and they went into captivity of the wicked nations that hated them for the next 3,000 years. And they're still under their bondage today. And God has done it to the United States. People look around and they see terrorism. And they, they, they think it's just because of, of, of the Middle East and our and, and, and religion. It isn't because of any of that. It's because this country, which was once founded on the principle of God, have turned their back on the very God that gave them everything that we have. And just like Israel, God always used the nations that hated them to judge them. When 9-11 happened, I remember one of the goofy guys on the 700 Club, I forget who it was, talked about the fact that it was God's judgment on America. And everybody went ballistic against him. Because they cannot conceive, they blinded ourselves through pride. We cannot conceive the fact that this country has totally and completely rejected everything about God and God's people. What you're seeing around our country is only going to get worse. On August 23rd, 2005, George Bush in his famous Roadmap to Peace... He took Gaza and the West Bank away from the nation of Israel and give it to the Muslims. That Gaza Strip and the West Bank was part of the land grant that God gave to Abraham. It's the Jews. And he kicked them out. On that very day, August 23rd, when he signed that paper, that very same day Hurricane Katrina formed in the golf course and over the next week destroyed the Gulf Coast nations of this country. And nobody even saw it or even was had the ability to connect the dots and see why. A study of God's movement in America will reveal, and I've told you this before, seven great awakenings in this country from 1700 with George Whitefield up to the early 1950s moving east to west across this country. Seven great awakenings where God injected himself into this country to keep this country where it needed to be. We as a country have trampled the blood-stained banner of Jesus Christ under our feet. And we replaced the word of God and the principles that God gave us with gay rights, with the liberal movement, with civil rights, with human rights with political correctness, with liberalism, with socialism, and all the ungodliness that comes along with it. Isaiah, so many hundreds of years ago, prophesied about this day in Isaiah 5, verse 20, because he saw it with Israel. He said there was a day coming when evil would now be called good, and good would now be called evil. He said in Isaiah 59, 14, there would be coming a day when truth as we know it would fall in the streets. Hosea saw in Hosea 4, 1 through 3, when he said there's a day coming where there's going to be no truth, no mercy, and no knowledge of God in the land. And we are here. We are here simply because in our pridefulness, we have mocked the righteousness of God in our sin. All my life I'm dealing with people. Now if you get upset because I have water and you don't, there's the reason. <laughs> if I get somebody came up to me b- with the service morning and said, how come you get to have water and we don't? And I said, Well, the reason is because if I get really parched and I can't speak, the only option was to have you finish the sermon and we all voted that was not gonna happen. <laughs> I think they left right after that. or for some reason, I had somewhere that had to go. All my life in talking and dealing with people about the Lord, I've heard the same old story. And I'm sure you have too. You know, yeah, I could never become a Christian. As a Christian, you don't really can't have any fun. And I learned very quickly in my Christian life that there was nothing farther from the truth. You kidding me? This is a party looking for a place to happen. You see, the problem is they just, they have the spelling wrong. They spell fun S-I-N. Amen. And to them, fun, it has to be sin for it to be fun. People, will, will, people today will get into sin. They'll reject God and his word. Sear their conscience and think that all their ungodliness, that it will in time, long term, it will destroy them. And they think today that that's really fun. How many times before some of you got saved and got your head illuminated with the Holy Spirit of God that every Saturday night when you drug yourself in drunk as a skunk and you threw up for an hour and a half and then you get up the next morning with an unbelievable headache and sick to your stomach and yet you had the unbelievable audacity to say, Man, that was fun. Yeah, why don't you just walk around life with your finger down your throat. You know, the great example of this, of you and me and the world and the things that we face, the very issues. One of the best examples, there's a number of them. One of the very best examples is Moses. I mean, stop and think. He grew up in Egypt. Egypt's a type of the world. And he was part and saw all the ungodliness that went on during that period of time. But he knew he was never born an Egyptian he knew he was different by birth. It was a natural birth, a national birth but he, was a, he knew that he was, he was of the nation of Israel and he had no part of the world Egypt. And you and I my friend are different from the world by a birth, a new birth, a spiritual birth or at least we should be. Amen. It should make the difference between what you used to do and what you don't do anymore, there should be a distinct difference between the lifestyle you live back there and the lifestyle you have now. And when there is no difference, you mock God with your sin. And I don't care who you are, where you're at, what you do, when you can't separate yourself from the world and you try to have a Bible in one hand and a beer in the other, you are going to mock God. And he said in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25. By faith, Moses, when he had come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see, he had to make a choice and you and I will have to choose just like Moses did. Moses saw Egypt, saw all the filth and ungodliness. We know it as a type of the world. We know that it mocked God, the word of God, and the people of God. And he knew, and I know, that the pleasures of sin are set now for all the ungodliness, totally and completely against God, and it's a type of the world in the Bible. And Moses looked at that and looked at what he would have to price, he would have to pay to walk with God, and he esteemed the reproach greater than the pleasures of sin for a season. Now that's a value system. But a fool will mock at sin and God. Now look at the last part of the verse. But among the righteous there is favor. Favor with God. The blessings of God in your life, in your family's life. Listen, nothing in this world will be better than the favor of God in your life and the life of your family. And I'm telling you a dying truth. I don't care how much money you have, you think you have, how important you think you are, what material possessions you own. I'm going to tell you something. Nothing in this world will be better and greater than the favor of God in your life and the hand of God in your life and on the hand of your life of your family. You know, at Christmas time, I, I watch things, you know. And many times, you know, Christmas is such, in so many ways, it's a false illusion. But, you know, in one way, I just, it breaks my heart, but I think to myself, you know what? What are you going to do? I'm out, you know, walking around. You see families having Christmas dinner together, you know, they all get together, or they'll go out, and they'll eat. And for a moment, you know, as you look around that table, you think, wow, what a nice thing. Our family is, is all together. And in so many cases, that's an illusion, it really is. Your family's not together. They're there to eat. And when they're done, you'll go your way and they'll go their way. Amen. Amen. There's no spiritual bond there. There's no ministry together. There's no favor of God together. It's just Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, dinner. Amen. That's it. That's it. I, I, I like the word favor. I like the word favorite. Because every Christian should look at himself as God's favorite. Favorite. I really mean that. Now, I know what I'm about to say, most of God's people don't have a clue and probably don't understand it, but you know that God has favorites. Now, He'll save anybody and He loves all of us, but there's some of us, you, who have more favor with God than others. You know that? And you know, people today, because they're so shallow in the Bible, they just think, you know, Jesus loves the little child. You know, and because of that, then everybody has to say, no, that's not true. And you know that's not true? wasn't true in the Bible. You take the 12 apostles. One got more favor than the other 11. One of the other 11 was a demon-possessed phony. Look to the left and right and try to spot him today. You got some, Peter and James, but looking at your wife. <laughs> she had drove a big arrow, was pointing toward you. <clears throat> and eight got the minimum. And they're a picture of Christianity today. Only one really got the favor of God. Now, could they all had it? Sure they could have. And, and you could have it too. It isn't like God picks and chooses who he, he wants. He, there's, some, there's some qualifications for that. Look at Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha in an inspirational application are a picture of two types of New Testament Christians. Mary had the favor. Martha had all the trouble. I mean, look at Israel. Out of all the other nations on the planet, God showed them favor. Look at churches, churches that have, that are Bible, I, I say it all the time, and people I think just goes over their head, and they think I'm some kooky old guy who's out of touch with reality, and I probably am a little bit, but the bottom line is this, there's favor in churches that are Bible-based in the line of Antioch and believe the book versus the ones that are not, and if you can't see that, you've been hanging out with the wrong crowd. I, I tell people all the time, you're my favorite person. And they'll say, <laughs> you say that to everybody. That's not exactly true. But many of you are my favorites. I mean, that's what God does. Why can't I do it? People don't get it. They'll say, which one of your daughters is your favorite? Now, they think that that kind of puts you in an awkward situation. It doesn't. I look at it the way God looks at it. And I'm going to explain it to you so the next time I tell you, you won't just say, Well, you say that to everybody. I'll slap you next time I say that. To <laughs> I'm gonna educate you here in just a minute. Some of you are unteachable, so listen carefully. They'll say, which one of your daughters are your favorite? Like, like I'm in a fix now. And I just simply say, Well, Kelly's my oldest favorite daughter, and Jamie's my youngest favorite daughter. Now, I'm gonna explain that in a minute. They say, Oh, you got Q-Toot. I bet it's hard to choose which one's your favorite. No, no, not at all. They're both my favorite, buddy. Is my favorite male lab. Daisy's my favorite female lab. See how easy that is. I mean, it's not. It's not hard. You know. You know. You all can be God's favorite. It's real easy. You know how He does it. The same, and I learned it from Him. I watched him do it with me and everybody else, and then I just said, oh, I got it, I'm in. <laughs> he sees different things in each one of you. And he looks at that, and then he says, man, I like that. I've never seen those qualities in a person like that before. You know what? That person's my favorite based on those qualities he's willing to give to me. Everybody will have one or two or three things that make you special that only you have. Now, unlike most of God's people, when they look at people, they look at the downside. I hear it all the time. Well, I don't like him. I don't like her. Well, you know what? I bet there's people out there, when they see you, say, I don't like you either. I never look at people that way. And maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I never look at people that way. I always try to look for exactly what God sees. Because I know in every person out there who's saved... If you have the Holy Spirit of God, you have qualities in you that God sees. My job is to try to see those qualities, too, and try to develop. Now, maybe you won't let them be developed. That's on you. Maybe you'll never let God bring you to the place where you ever get to where you have those qualities exposed where God can really use them and you'll give them to him. I get it. I get it. But many of you are my favorites in my life because you're you're so unique. You're so special. And some of you have multiple things. Some of you have an incredible sense of humor. And when everything else is falling apart, you'll see the funny side of it. I like that. I need that. Some of you have an incredible ability to survive. I've watched you come through things in your life that would have folded up a normal person. And when I see that in a person's life, I'm saying to myself, that's a quality. I want to be around. You're my favorite person. Some of you have a toughness to face adversity. Things will come up in your life and where most people are over in a corner shaking and, and, and throwing up, you just pick it up and move on in life. I want to be around that. I, when I see that, that's my favorite person. i watch watched some of you, and you can have multiple of these. I'm not just saying you, you only have one. Some of you have four or five of them. Some people can have them all maybe. But if you got just one, you're good to go. I've seen some of God's people who were the most giving, caring people you ever saw in your life. And they don't do it for show. They're always doing it behind the scenes where nobody sees. But I see it. And I think to myself, what God must think—that's a quality that makes that person a favorite of mine. Some of you're open. Some of you're open. Whatever you see is what you get. And maybe you know—you know—I've met people who that weren't far along in the Bible yet, that were maybe where they. They'll get there in time, but maybe they're just a new Christian and they're working through some things. And you don't see a lot of spiritual depth to them, but i see a quality that they are what they are. And they're always open and transparent and you see, and as the old saying goes, what you see is what you get. That's a quality I look for. Some of you are great with people. Some of you have great wisdom and understanding in dealing with people. And some of you, boy, I, I classify you as my go-to people. <laughs> some of you have a great love for people. You're very compassionate toward them. I see that. Some of you, I, I love this about you. It makes you unique. You've never met a stranger. You meet somebody for the first time. They used to say about my dad, he never met a stranger. My dad's favorite for us was, hi, buddy. Everybody. I don't think my dad had an enemy in the world. I got a lot of traits from him. That wasn't one that I got. (coughs) I have a lot of enemies. (coughs) Some of you are very courageous. I've watched you in the face of something you had to decide to do that maybe involved your family or involved something that could have been very, very easy to go a compromising way. And I just stood back and watched. And when you made that decision, when you did what was right, when you knew no matter what the family was doing or where the family was at, you knew what the word of God said and you kept it in that thing, wow. You're my favorite. Some of you are rock solid on the book. Been around for a while. You know where you stand. You're unmovable. I like that. Show me your great fathers, great mothers. I'll watch you with your kids. You do a great job. I like that. You're my favorite. Show me you have great compassion. You're my favorite. Show me you have a great balance. You're my favorite. Show me you have a great husband or a great wife. You're my favorite. Each one of you will have special and valuable qualities to me. And because we are in the work of God together, that quality or qualities that you have will make you my favorite because there's nobody else like you. Nobody else like you. And where so many people just look at people and stereotype them every way, God doesn't look at us that way. That's how you all can be God's favorite without anybody getting left out. Because God sees down below the stereotype and he sees inside those very character qualities that so many of you have that God says, ha! Oh, you're my favorite. You're my John. You're my James. You're my Peter. And let me tell you something. If you're good enough to be God's favorite, you're good enough to be mine. You're special to me simply because you're one of a kind. And God allowed you and me to minister together. And man, that to me makes you (laughs) my favorite. And hey, I got no secrets. If you want to know, if you want to know what makes you my favorite, just come and ask me. I'll tell you. I'd love to tell you. Now, if I just change and ask about the weather or what you got for Christmas, (laughs) then like a guy walking along the beach with God one day. God said, "You know what? You're my favorite. I really love you." He said, "Well, I love you too, Lord." He said, "I want to do anything you want me to do." He said, "Really, Lord?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, you know, and I always want to go to Hawaii, but you know, I hate planes and I don't like to be on the water." Lord, <clears throat> would you build? Would you build a bridge from the west coast all the way over to Hawaii so I can just get in my car and drive? The Lord kind of snickered and said, "Well, you know that." I mean, I know of God, but man, you realize the work that's got to go into that, and how I, I, I just, I just don't, I just don't think I could. That would probably. Don't you have something else? And he says, "Well, yeah, you know, I do." He says, uh, <clears throat> "I want to, I want to understand women. I want to know how they think. I want to know what they think. I want to know why they're the way they are." He went through this whole list, and God got real quiet, and God said, do "You want that bridge to be a two-lane or a four-lane?" <clears throat> If you come and ask me and I say, you want your bread to be a 2 later or a four-layer? I'd never do that. I'd just lie to you and make you feel good. <laughs> Old Mel used to say his favorite verse was in Psalms. Lying's an abomination in the sight of God. But a very present help in a time of trouble. <clears throat> Favor with God. Proverbs is filled with it. Proverbs 3, 4 says, So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 8, 35, Whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Proverbs 12, 2, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Proverbs 13, 15, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Proverbs 14, 35, The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him that he cannot share. And for a child of God, nothing better to be God's favorite. And that's a great verse, favor in the Lord. Now look at verse 10. It says, the heart knoweth his own bitterness, and the stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. Now that's an incredible verse. It really is. That's a great verse in understanding how to help people and understanding a lot about yourself. Understanding the things that people go through. And some of God's people will go through some tough times and we all want to help them. That first part of that verse says the heart knoweth his own bitterness. You know, when we go through some great trial in life, there's always people who want to be there for for us and thank God for that. That's a great thing. But you know the truth of the matter is only you know the depth of your trial and your pain. Only you. We have here the people ministry, and I've worked with about 80 or 90 people to get them online and being able to really get in to help people through their problems. But even with all of that, you know what? Those people we work with, they themselves only know the depth of their pain. Sometimes they're just, honestly, I've been in situations where there's just nothing left to say. You know, some preachers, you can always spot them. And a lot of Christians, they're famous for their ability to keep on speaking long after there's nothing left to say. (laughs) And in dealing with people, you get all the principles that relate to their issues and you try to be understanding to where they're at. But even then, you, you can't get on a level of their heart of their hurt or their brokenness. They only know their own heart and the depth of it. You know, in really three ways that I can't see. They themselves only know the depth and know if they're going through this because God wants to strengthen them and that they're totally right with God. Or they only know the depth that they're not where they need to be with God and he's having a little come to Jesus meeting with them. You know. Or sometimes only they will know if they're going through what they're going through for somebody else's benefit. i found that in either case, my job, even when I can't get it on the level where they're at totally, just to walk through it with them, to love them through it, to be there for some key moment when God wants me to lift them up. I think the loneliest place in a hospital, and I every time I go to the hospital, I always pass by and I always think this, the loneliest place in the hospital has to be the waiting room where people wait for an answer to come back on the fate of a loved one. Where moms and dads sit there in quiet. I used to go there when, when I would see somebody and I'd go into the waiting room and there'd be eight or nine people in there. And you could tell that there was heaviness in their heart. And I'd always give them little Johns or Romans or a little something to, you know, for them to read. And, you know, I never tried to invade in where they were at unless they asked me. But I think it's the loneliest place in the hospital, that waiting room. And I've sat in those waiting rooms with some of you when you lost your mom or you lost your dad or you went through some tough time in your life or or somebody in your family. And I've sat there four or five hours and all I was doing was waiting for maybe that two or three minutes that God put me on cue to be there to give you what you needed. And I've come to the place in my life in a spiritual sense. I may not be able to solve your problem. I may not be able to always get on the level where you're at. I'll try to get as close as I can. And I'll certainly walk through with you. But I promise you this, spiritually speaking, I'll always be in the waiting room. Because that's the most loneliest place of your life when you're waiting. And somebody needs to be there. And then the last part of verse 10. And this is a great thing. And the stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. It's a great contrast. You know, too many of God's people will allow others to steal their joy. You know that? Christianity is filled with people who have no joy and they don't want you to have it either. But when you're God's favorite and you know it, he'll give you something that he won't give anybody else. And this is where I feel bad for so many of God's people. Uh, they never just never see it. They never understand it. Many of God's people today, they never have a time in their Bible when it's just you and him. Early in the morning, late at night, or sometime during the day when the house is quiet and it's just you and God. And it's almost like you're standing there with your open Bible and you're studying it and you're reading it. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit of God is standing over your shoulder with his finger pointing exactly where he wants you to go. And he gives you some incredible truth. And he only gives it to you. He didn't give it to your neighbor who's a Christian. He didn't give it to somebody in your friend circle that's a Christian. He gave it to you. You know why? Because you're really special to him. You make the effort on that level, you'll always come away with something special. One of the greatest truths I ever learned about life and the Bible and God and my relationship with him is simply this. God will always take care of those who find the right way to take care of him. In my life, you may take my house, my car. All my earthly possessions. But you'll never take my Bible and you'll never get my joy. Most of God's people, unfortunately, have neither. Because, you see, I'm God's favorite. And he gave me some things to me that nobody else can touch. And we're so foolish when we let people who don't have any joy. And boy, they're out there want to come and rob you of your joy you never let that happen you can't intermeddle with those things my joy that's our joy in the Lord then look at verse 11 the house of the wicked shall be overthrown but the tabernacle of the upright shall flourish now here's another great contrast you see the wicked he just has a house But the upright, he has a tabernacle. And the unsaved worldly Christian just, he just has a house, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a body. And it'll be furnished with all the things of this world in a spiritual sense. His whole life, his house will be built all around his possessions, worldly, earthly things. In his life, spiritually speaking, you know, he will find his happiness or try to find his happiness in these temporal, earthly possessions. But never joy. You know, happiness is a word that comes off of the word happy. And when you have happiness is when you're happy. But when you're not happy, then you're unhappy. But see, that's where joy is so great. Joy doesn't have any beginning and an ending to it. Joy is just simply based on your relationship with God. That's why you find so many people who are depressed. They're happy today, but... They're not happy this afternoon. They'll get a new car. They'll get something for Christmas. And all they're happy. But by nightfall, they're unhappy again. Because happiness happens because of the happenings of life. Joy comes because of your relationship. And nobody can take that from you. But in time, those things that he has, those earthly possessions that he has built in his house, they will fail him. For in reality, there's no real satisfaction to his soul in those. It's all an illusion. And at some point, his whole world will be overthrown and collapse on itself. The house of the wicked shall be overthrown. It has no foundation, it has no real structure, and it has nothing of any substance. One of the greatest examples is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. of The guy there where it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. There he is, Proverbs, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house that it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, one guy built his house on a rock and it sustained everything the world could throw at it. The other one built it on the sand. And when the winds came and the things of this life, it collapsed verse 27, the last part says, and great was the fall of it, and it always certainly is. But then it says, but the tabernacle of the upright shall flourish. Now, I want you to notice that his house is more uh, more than just a house. It's a tabernacle. And I always want you to see that his dwelling just doesn't get him through day to day. Bible says it flourishes. It gets better and better every day. Now the Bible says in your tabernacle you should have some furniture. Second Timothy chapter three, verse seventeen says, verse sixteen says all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Then verse 17 says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There's some furnishings you need to put. And you see, in the world we clutter our lives up, don't we? We got TV in the bedroom, got TV downstairs, got TV in the garage, got TV in the living room. We got, we got couches here, couches there. We open the clothes, the shoes fall out, smother you, You don't find you for a week. You got, we we clutter our lives up with all of these things that we think are going to make us happy. And I want to tell you something, there's nothing wrong with having those things in the balance. But never think for a moment that they will be and make you happy. But when a Christian's life, you only need seven pieces of furniture. It's clutter-free. You only need seven. And based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and Exodus chapter 25 and 26, the upright has just seven pieces of furniture in his tabernacle. And God lives inside that tabernacle. And the furnishings, here it comes. We think they're for us. They're not for us. They're for him. I'll tell you something. You better get this straight. The joy you have in your own life that comes from God will only come because of the joy that you give him in his life inside you. When you provide him with the furnishings that is the desire of his heart, you will get the desires of your heart. When you make him comfortable and happy in your tabernacle, you will be comfortable and happy in everything that you do. When he comes inside you and he has all day long the joy of the seven things that he loves, you will have all the joy in your life of the things that you want. It doesn't work any other way. And we as God's people think that we can forsake this, clutter our lives up with all the things that we have, and then actually wonder why we're not happy. Providing joy to God who lives inside you will be the key to your joy. You give him no joy, he returns the favor. Our joy is simply based on the joy we give him. We only give him our trouble so many times and never give him what he wants. Isn't that amazing? When you know that God has some things that he wants and we refuse to give him, and all we ever do is just give him our problems. I've told you about the seven pieces of furniture many, many times. But since it fits into the message today, the first piece would be the brass brazen altar found in Exodus chapter 27. Made of brass out in the outer court. We talk a lot about the victory of God in our lives. The victory of God is simply found in these seven things. You find a guy, gal, don't have the victory, they don't have these seven things going in their life. Of course, they're kind of deep. You don't get this with just basic things in the Bible. But there's seven joys that you give God that God gives you. You know what the first joy is? That's the brazen altar. Joy in the day that God saved you. that'll That'll be a day that you never forget in your life. That'll be a day of rejoicing for the rest of your life around that brazen altar to the fact that God saved you. In New Year's Eve, when we talk about these things, preach about these things, and testimonies are given but the people that wanted to give them, I want to tell you something. There's joy around that brazen altar every day of your life, the fact that God saved you. Second piece of furniture was right outside before you went in. It was called a labor of water, found in Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. That provides the joy of my continual fellowship and my ability to get clean When my fellowship gets broken because I get dirty, the washing of the water by the word, getting clean with God, there's joy in that. The third thing, once you moved inside the second compartment was the seven golden candlestick. It's found in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. That's joy in the Holy Spirit of God in my life to lead and guide me. John chapter sixteen, the great New Testament definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit, tells you that there's seven things that Holy Spirit of God does for you. There's joy in that. The fourth thing is the Shewbread, Exodus 25 verse 23, picture of the Word of God. There's joy in the Word of God that my sustaining in my journey of this life is not of this world. Then you have the altar of incense. Exodus chapter 30 verse 1. Joy in my prayer life that I can talk with God without going through any mediator, any man. That I don't have to go through a priest or confess to this or go through this that I have access with God through Jesus Christ 24-7. There's joy in my ability to have prayer and communication with God. The sixth piece of furniture will be the golden censer. Now, that golden censer was, was incense off the altar of incense, but he carried it with him wherever he went, and he shook it back and forth, and it filled the smell of the room wherever he went. You'll find that in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 12. That's a picture of you, me, and praying without ceasing, that wherever I go, I can pray to God anytime, place, anywhere. I don't have to be in church. I don't have to be in any, I can be driving my car down the street. I can be running. I can be doing whatever I want. I can be sitting in a deer stand. Not on Sunday morning. I I can be anywhere I want to (laughs) be. Then the seventh piece of furniture was in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant. That'll be Exodus 25 verses 1 through 22. That's a joy in my depth with God. You see, here's how it works. Many of God's people are saved this morning, and they rejoice in the brazen altar. Many people go to the next level, as many of you do here, and you learn how to use the candlestick, the shoe bread. You do have a prayer life. And your spiritual world and the joy of it is in that second compartment. I mean, you have some of God's people who never get past getting saved, they never get into the ministry. But then you have people that get into the ministry. They understand why the show bread is over here and the candlesticks are over here. It's completely dark and the only light coming on that bread is from the candlestick type. They get it all. They understand it. Then you have some of God's people that get to the point in their life, not many do, that they get the depth of God. Ephesians 4 called it the fullness of God. And to get the depth of God and the fullness of God to understand God in the way that he wants to be understood. you got to go behind the veil. Not many God's people get to that level in their Christian life. Some of them never leave the brazen altar. They don't grow one inch past the day they got saved. Some get into the second and do some great stuff. But if you want the depth of God and the fullness of God and understanding the real joy of a relationship with God on his level, got to go behind the veil. Got to get in there with the ark. I don't have time this morning to tell you the three things that are in that ark that helps you pull it all together and put that whole concept, but going behind the veil is simply getting to a point in your Christian life where you are so deep with God and he is so deep with you that you understand the very depth of everything that God is and what he wants to do with you. Oh, the bulk of God's people, they just hang out at the brazen altar. They got saved. Praise God for it. It's all the farther they're going. Then you have some of God's people that they actually do some things for God and praise God for them. Boy, they're they're in there doing it. But if you want to be God's favorite, if you want to have the favor of God, got to go behind the veil. You got to get back there where very few people ever go. Where it's just you and him. This is where he'll show you the things that he won't show anybody else. This is where you'll be able to look at George Bush's past the peace, or you'll look at 9-11, or you'll look at Middle East today, or you'll look at this, or you'll look at that, or you'll look at this situation and this situation, and you see it. I talk about it all the time. You see it from God's standpoint. You know why? Because you're behind a veil. You're behind a veil. And you flourish. You flourish. You know... Most of the kids' stories that you hear today are all Bible based at some point. Old Bob Jones sin used to say that every bad thing in this world is a good thing twisted. A lot of truth to that. And I know that you have a lot of nursery rhymes that you tell your kids, and your kids come up, grow up learning, you know, a lot of stories. And they're all Bible based. Mary had a little lamb, and its fleece was white as snow. And you had a snow white who got poisoned by a wicked witch and died and could never come back to life till someday her prince came and kissed her brought her back to life. You know, there was a day in your life and my life that we were dead in trespasses of sin and we were dead as Snow White. But one day my prince came and kissed me and he gave me the kiss of life and I'm alive today in Jesus. See? In kids' stories, you have the story of old King Midas. A king that everything he touched turned to gold. And yet Psalm chapter one. Verses one, uh, one, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law will he meditate day and night. And verse 3 says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the river waters that bringeth forth his fruit in this season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The mightiest touch for a Christian. <clears throat> A time in your life where everything you touch turned to gold. At the judgment seat of Christ. In the story of King Midas, his touching gold was his demise. Because when he got the ability to touch and turn everything to gold, every time he wanted to eat something, he'd pick up an apple because he was hungry and it would turn to gold and he couldn't eat it. He'd get starving to death and grab a turkey leg and go, before it could ever get into his mouth, it would turn to gold. See, in the nursery rhyme, this is where they get off the Bible cue. That's a bad thing. Let me tell you something. For you and for me, having a Midas touch, Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the greatest thing in the world. Because I don't want to eat any turkey legs of this old world. I want to digest the gold of heaven, brother. And when you touch everything and it turns to gold, it just shows you that nothing in this old world sustains you anymore. Then there was a second tragedy in King Midas' life. The world always got to ruin a good story. That was his kids ran in to see him one day, who he loved much. And he went to hug his kids. And yes, you guessed it, his kids turned to Gold. We look at that and think, "What a sad thing!" I look at that and think, "You know what? I hope every one of you in this room has the mindest touch that when you touch your kids, they turn to gold at the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> they turn to gold, brother. <laughs> oh man, that they flourish!" And that everything in your life, because you're behind the veil and you're God's favorite, your leaf never withers. Whatsoever you do, it shall prosper. Because you got the right furnishings in the tabernacle. And the right furnishings in the tabernacle give joy to God. Some of God's people need to have a garage sale. Better yet, they need to have a fire sale before the fire comes and takes it. Seven pieces of furniture in your tabernacle, the brazen altar, laver of water, seven golden candlesticks, the shoe bread, altar of incense, the golden censer, and the holy of holies. You put those seven things in your life and get the clutter out, You'll be God's favorite. And whatever you do and whatever you touch within your family, within your life, within this world will turn to gold at the judgment seat of Christ.